This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you sign up today using the show's link, that's Hired.com slash RubyRogues, you can get double the normal hiring bonus. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at Hired.com slash RubyRogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Gabe Kimura. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about finding a developer job. Uh, this is something I suggested because I've been working for a while on a course for this. And I, I kind of want to talk through a few things. And Dave also mentioned a few things that he's seen that that I think we should dig into. Um, I think I think the first thing that we should talk about, though, is just... Dave, you mentioned that people have this internal clock as far as jobs go. Do you want to kind of explain what you've seen there? And then we can kind of jump in and talk about why we think that is and, and how people should approach that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, just uh, given my experience and some background about me is that I've been at my current employer for about eight years. And most of that time I've been doing development. And my previous employer, I was a systems administrator for a small engineering company. And I was there for six years. So uh, that's been pretty much my entire working career. You know, a few little odd jobs here and there before I landed the sysadmin job. But one thing I've noticed in the developer community is that, you know, people have like this one to two year internal clock that as soon as it goes off, it's like, oh, time to find another job. And it's one thing that's kind of always confused me because, you know, sure, there's going to be situations that you run into where the company has a direction or a employee has an issue that is kind of almost of a deal breaker to you. But, you know, I usually have stuck around and stuck through those things, even when I was wrongfully uh, judged on something. And, you know, it's it's all kind of worked out. So it's one of those things that's kind of always confused me that why do people go from one job to another job in such a short amount of time, especially when you're looking at a development job where the onboarding time to actually get in there and start being useful could take a little bit of time, especially if you don't know the space that that program is solving. OK, so let's compare notes. Um, so I, I graduated with a computer engineering degree from BYU. Um, that's Brigham Young University for those that aren't familiar. It's here in Provo, Utah. And, uh, my first job, I was basically running the technical customer support for Mosey, which is a company here in Pleasant Grove. And I worked there. 
I did that for about a year, and then I moved over to QA for six months, and then I switched jobs. So I'd been there for a year and a half, and I went to another company. Um, they were a consultancy, worked for them for a year. They laid me off, um, went and for, worked for another company that did uh, education lead generation, worked for them for about a year, and then switched jobs again, um, and worked for a company that did um, crime data and mapping, and I worked for them for about six months, and they laid me off. And then I went freelance, and I, you know, I hopped clients whenever things changed. I think the longest I had a client was a year, year and a half. So this kind of internal clock that you're talking about, I, I either hit it by necessity because they laid me off, or because it was time to move. And so um, I, I think I think there are reasons for it. Um, I think also that uh, in a lot of cases the the employers probably need to do a little bit more to keep people engaged and uh, keep them around because I definitely agree with you. It's a huge loss whenever you get somebody up to speed and then have them go. And so um, anyway, the reasons that I typically would change jobs. So that first job when I was in QA, the reason I switched jobs was because a, the company had been acquired and the character of the company had just changed. The culture was changing. There were a lot of people that were making trying to make career plays up into the larger company that had acquired us, which was EMC Corporation, which is now owned by Dell, incidentally. Um, and the other thing was, was that um, one of my coworkers said, go out, get a competitive offer, bring it back, and they'll match it. So I went out and got a competitive offer, and the competitive offer was a $20,000 a year raise. And I was making $40,000 a year at the time. So it was essentially half my salary again. And they came back and they wouldn't match it. And so I left. Um, and, and the money was just, you know, it was, it was one of the things that really, you know, I, I just couldn't say no to it. Um, I had stock options, but the stock options wouldn't have made up for it. Um, so I cashed out the stock options I had and then left. And then um, the next company I worked at, I was pretty happy there, but they laid me off. So after a year, they ran out of Ruby on Rails work and they laid me off. Um, so I went to another company. I actually wound up getting my next job the same day. I went home, told my wife I'd been laid off, posted my resume, got a call for a job interview, went into the job interview. They said, when can I start? When can you start? You know, they called me on my way home. I said, tomorrow. And uh, then I went home, took my wife out for our anniversary. It was our third anniversary. I got laid off. And... <laughs> And yeah. uh, went to work the next day. Um, that company was a terrible place to work. You know, sometimes you just wind up with those. My boss was kind of a jerk. Um, they weren't very well organized. And so I wound up looking for a job after about six months because I was just not happy there at all. And yeah. I, was, I, I, I joined one of the teams. And within a couple months, I was leading the team. I was team lead. Um, and my programming career was about a year and a half long at that point. Um, so the next job that I got was uh, crimereports.com and they just had some financial issues and wound up laying me off. Um, but yeah, so it, it was kind of a, a here and there. Um, I probably, the way that Crime Reports was run or the, the company name was Public Engines and the team that I was on, I was pretty happy. I probably would have stayed there for years. But, you know, it just didn't work out. Um, and that's kind of the world you're in with startups. And that was, I think, part of the issue with me jumping around. But the jobs that I wound up leaving of my own accord, it was either because I could get, make substantially more somewhere else 
or because the working conditions just weren't ideal and I wasn't happy at all there. Um, if it was something that I thought I could work through, I, I encourage people to try and work through them, but sometimes you can't. And so um, I think that's part of it too. And I also know people that have hopped around jobs where they're, they're in the, this career because it's a challenge and because they're learning new things and they really enjoy that aspect of programming. And what winds up happening is, is they'll be at a job for a year or two and then it's not a challenge anymore. They're not learning. They're not growing. They're not leveling up the way that they want to. And they kind of lean on their job for some of that. And, and I think that's fair to a certain degree. But then the other thing is, is that their employer won't invest in them leveling up. So they won't pay for video learning services. They won't pay to send them to conferences. They won't uh, pay for, you know, in, in-house training or anything like that. And so they feel like they're stuck and that they're not going anywhere. And I actually interviewed a whole bunch of people for my course on how to find a job. And especially people who have been in their programming career for less than two years, um, when they're looking to make that first switch, that's typically how they're feeling is they're saying, you know what, I've been here for a year or two. Um, I feel like I'm just kind of, you know, put here and told to code whatever I'm going to code but I don't really have opportunities to grow and learn. And I feel like everything's kind of moving on without me. And so they move on and they find another company that's doing something that's different or interesting, or at least will invest in them in some way so that they feel like they can grow on their own outside of work. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy that, um, you know, I've been doing the relatively the same thing for the past six years mm -hmm. and, I'm always learning, you know, every time I go to tackle something, you know, I always try to approach it from a different perspective or at least try to, you know, to really see, okay, here is what I've done before. And was that really the right way to do it? Or is there a better way that I'm not seeing? And I'll take some time to do some R and D and some research to really find, you know, what is going to be the the best, the fastest way, the most maintainable way, the way that's going to uh, minimize the technical debt. And really, um, every opportunity to write a line of code, I'm always trying to see how can I improve myself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I guess unless if you're doing something that's very mundane, like a data entry, you know, as a developer where it's just, you know, maybe not... Um, that repetitive, but something similar to that where there is no room for growth. Yeah, I could definitely see how that could be uh, annoying because uh, my brain is definitely wired to always have to learn. You know, if yeah. there's something I don't know, then it's something that I will look up and research, uh, you know, really invest the time into it. So so I have to ask then, is this something that you're you're encouraged to do or allowed to do at work, you know, where you're I've got to build this feature. I've got to write this, uh, this function or this method or this class to do this particular job. Are you encouraged to actually figure out how to do it better? Because I've, I've been at some companies and I know other people that I've talked to have been at some companies where that kind of stuff is discouraged. It's just turn the crank faster and get more stuff out. Well, because I'm over the project, uh, I take the time to do mm -hmm. it and I encourage the people who, uh, you know, are on that team to do it as well, because if there is a better way to do something out there and if it is something that 
everyone can personally and for the company benefit from, then it's not wasted time. Wasted time is having to go back to a old part of your application and completely refactor the entire thing. So I, I totally you know, agree. But uh, some companies are just short-sighted enough to where, you know, they, yeah, it's, it's oh, well, you want to write tests? Well, that's time that you could be writing code. Yeah. And those companies, I guess, uh, you know, if they're startups, I can definitely see their perspective that mm -hmm. they want to hurry up and get something out the door. But you also have to figure if your code is, if the application you're building is full of bugs because you didn't do your due diligence and write tests, or if there's a lot of security issues, you know, if you haven't had a code audit yeah, or even done, done something as simple as run a breakman on your code to see any kind of uh, OWASP top tens or vulnerabilities, then you're going to pay for it in the long run. I mean, there's no way around it. It's not a matter of if something happens, it's a matter of when. And did you allow your developers to do their job and their due diligence to protecting the code and the company. I, I totally agree. The other aspect of this that I see, though, is that, you know, you mentioned startups and sometimes you're just you're, you're trying to run fast enough to, you know, to keep the, the, the water in the bucket, so to speak. Right. So, so you've got the, the bucket tip forward and you're just running fast enough so it doesn't spill any on the ground, because, you know, at the end of the day, if you can cross the finish line first with the most water in your bucket, then you win. Um, but when you're working under those circumstances, the teams that I've seen most successful, especially with the developers working in there, are developers where they feel like they're part of the team and that they're part, part of making a contribution to what the company is doing. And if, they, if they're just there to, like I said, turn the crank and you know they're getting pressure about turning the crank faster without understanding sort of the objectives that the company is going to have longer term, then again, you know, they just, again, they, they just feel stuck. It's like, well, the pressure's way up. My stress level's through the roof. And at the end of the day, no matter what I do, I'm just going to get yelled at to, to crank more code. Yeah. You yeah. know. You, you need then, them to believe in the mission and you need them to be part of the team. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Okay. So let's forget about the mission and forget about the team. It's just you and your manager. Uh -huh. <laughs> if your manager is telling you to work 80 hours a week, something is wrong. <laughs> I mean, something is very wrong. Uh, in fact, you know, I usually, or not usually because I've gotten yelled at about it, but I do work um, 60 to 80 hours a week for my day job because I enjoy it. I truly enjoy what I do and I just can't get away from it. You know, I, I have a problem, okay? I, mm -hmm. I realize that. And my manager tells me, like, stop quit yep. working so much. And I think that's healthy, you know, to have a company that understands that you are a human, you do have limitations. And if you're unable to recognize those limitations that you should have around yourself, then you probably have some kind of addiction or problem. You know, in my case, I wouldn't say that I'm a workaholic. I'm just someone who likes to work a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if that's not oxymoron. But, you know, I think that often managers forget that developers are humans. You know, um, Ernie Miller had this uh, movement, uh, Humane Development, which I really liked. Uh, have you heard of it? Uh, no, I haven't. I, I'm 
I know Ernie pretty well, but yeah, I haven't I haven't followed that one. Yeah, so he's from Louisville, Kentucky, and that's where I had moved from a couple uh-huh. years ago. So I was attending his Ruby meetup and got to uh, chat with him a bit. And the whole principle around the humane development is uh, the developers are humans, and they should be treated as such. They're not machines. They're not something that you bark orders to. You know, uh, you treat them as people and you expect out of them as people. Yeah, well, and I mean, even if you want to think of them as assets or machines, if you think of your developers that way, I mean, there's a certain amount of maintenance that you have to put into something that gives you something back. And so if you're looking at that and you're recognizing, you know what, Um, I'm going to run this person into the ground or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ruin the capabilities of this person at least short term if I don't do some common maintenance. So uh, I agree that we should treat people as humans, but you also have to recognize that, yeah, you know, maybe they need some downtime. Maybe they need, you know, some some of that self-care or self-maintenance because they're the ones that are going to have to take care of themselves. You ultimately can't do that as a company, at least not in, in the deep, meaningful ways that are going to get people along to where they need to be. Yeah, absolutely. So a little side story, completely unrelated. But uh, I had this car back when I was a teenager and I was driving. It was a 1987 Toyota Camry. thing was a piece of crap, but it ran like a champ. Uh It ran so well that I forgot to change the oil for 30,000 miles. And yes, that's right. 35,000 some odd miles. And the car blew up. Like it literally sent a piston up through the hood of the car. So I think that goes to show (laughs) (laughs) if you don't give it just some maintenance, then things are going to happen. It might not seem like it right now, or it might not even seem like it for several months, but the damage is being done. And if you don't take care of it, Mm -hmm. then something bad is going to happen. Yeah. My sister did that to a car a couple weeks ago and, yeah, I was teasing her about letting the magic smoke that makes the car work out. But yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, if if you don't take care of it, it's yeah, eventually it's going to have that damage done. And uh, you know, as entrepreneur, you know, I, I run into this as well. You know, sometimes I'm just like, I have all of these things that have to get done, and eventually I just get to the point where I'm trying to get stuff done, and I'm really just staring at my screen, wishing that I could work. And it's because, you know, I don't do that maintenance for myself. So, yeah. So my body has kind of been trained well enough to, you know, or I've learned to listen to my body because there was uh, many times where I would just uh, over, you know, overexert myself to a point where I would physically get sick. You know, I was uh, always been always have been really prone to strep throat. So uh, I would literally work myself into getting the flu or strep throat or something. So uh, I've learned to listen to my body to say, hey, look, either to my manager saying, hey, I need some time off the sprint. You know, I know we're really busy, but I need some rejuvenating time Uh, or even on my side projects. You know, when it's one or two a.m., you know, I know that I still have this thing that I want to build. You know, this one last feature I want to complete tonight. But, you know, of course, 1 and, eight, one and 2 a.m. is, you know, kind of overexerting when I wake up at 6 a.m. every day. But yeah. uh, it, it's something where you have to learn to listen to your body. 
Absolutely. Absolutely agree. So if somebody feels like they're overextended by their job and they, they're, they can't get out of it or they feel like they're stuck and they're not learning, um, what do you generally tell people to do um, as far as getting another job? I mean, do you tell them to stick it out or try and find a way around it? Or do you just say, you know what, go find another job? Well, I would first say that you need to, you know, look at the situation and really read the situation. Is um, is the issue a self-induced issue mm-hmm. or is it something that the employer is pushing on to you? So for me, um, you know, I'm I'm fortunate enough to have a house where I can keep things segregated. So even though I have a laptop that my work has provided me that I do my work on, I make sure that I'm not sitting on my couch working or even just browsing the internet on that laptop. You know, uh, I keep a actual physical separation of when I'm working and when I'm not working, when I'm relaxing, even on my side projects. So, you know, it's one of those things where if you find that you're always working, because maybe you have your TV in your family room and then that's kind of where you have your computer and your laptop and you're just kind of sitting on the couch working at night. That's a big deal, you know, to me at least, because you're not creating a physical separation of where you work and where you relax. And what you're going to find happen is you're either going to never work and always relax or you're going to be always working and never relaxing. So having a physical separation of your relaxation area and your work area to me is really important. Even, you know, if you don't have a large space, if you live in a single, you know, uh, in a single room dwelling, like a studio, get a little separator wall and just isolate one small area for your work and use that area only for your work. Don't let other areas in your life, um, you know, seep into there and vice versa. I think it's really interesting that you bring up boundaries because when I was working for Mosey, I got pretty burned out and I was, uh, I was actually running their, like I said, their technical uh, customer support department. And so, um, you know, the other folks would come in, they'd work their hourly rate and or their hours, and then they would leave. And I was super burned out by the time I moved over to QA. And there were some other political reasons why I switched departments. But um, one thing that was interesting was that when I switched departments, um, I decided that I was just going to work 40 hours. And that was it. Um, and if they wanted more time than that, then, you know, they were going to have to justify it. And I'll tell you, man, things got so much better just by having those boundaries. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I work from home too. And yeah, it makes a huge difference when I'm in my office, I'm working and, um, you know, to, to kind of reverse what you're saying, um, my kids generally don't come in my office. Now my, my, uh, 20 month old does cause she doesn't think about it. She just, you know. She'll, she'll come visit me and um, my other kids will come bother me sometimes when my wife's not here if if I'm the parent that's home. But it's it's just really interesting, uh, you know, so that when I'm in here, I'm working. And then, yeah, when I go downstairs, sometimes I'll fool around with a game on my phone or something. But other than that, you know, I'm cooking dinner or reading to my kids or, yeah, just, just doing those other things that are involved in that. And... Yeah, having that separation, you know, just setting those boundaries. This time is work time. This time is not work time, um, you know, and, and setting aside the time for family and things like that is really important. 
And I think your point too, where you said, you know, is it, is it self-inflicted or is it work inflicted? A lot of times um, we misunderstand what, what the expectations are at work and we push it. And sometimes we just really like our job and we push it. And I've done both of those. Mm -hmm. And so just by um, having a little bit of communication with your boss and just saying, Hey, you know what? I've been working these crazy hours and I just don't feel like I can do it anymore. A lot of times they'll look at you and go, we don't want you to work those crazy hours. We want you to have a healthy lifestyle so that, you know, you can continue to contribute here that you feel good about working for us. And so that you can enjoy your life because otherwise what's the point? Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure that any employer would never say, I expect you to work 80, 90 hours a week. You know, they probably get sued I, or in I, trouble. I have, I have, I have friends that work for companies that have told them we're a shop that works 80 hours a week. Yeah. And you know what? Um, the money is good, but yeah, I, I see some of them just, I mean, they just burn out hard and then, yeah. you know, other people, take advantage of some of the perks to make it work out, you know, so they have like a gym or something there and, you know, sometimes they can get some relief and, you know, release and what they're doing at work is something they really enjoy and they don't have a family to go home to. And so they, they you know, they kind of make it work, but a lot of people, if they have more than just a couple of things to juggle, can't handle an 80 hour work week along with everything else. Yeah. So if your employer is, uh, you know, especially if you're a small shop and, if you have a couple of developers and a manager, you know, I'm sure you guys are following some kind of um, agile or scrum methodology. But one important thing to do is planning, mm -hmm. you know, to see what everyone's capacity is for a particular duration of time and then see what you can actually fit into there. Because if you don't have anything like that scheduled and put on paper, then you're going to end up working too much. You're going to over promise and over, um, you know, and under deliver sometimes. So I think, you know, implementing some kind of agile or scrum methodology where, you know, you develop fast and you do a lot of iterations, but you also plan, you know, you create a backlog of all the items that you want to do. And then you, have a meeting to say here within this sprint, we're going to be able to pull in this many defects and this many new features. And don't exceed that because you're essentially saying, given our capacity, here's what we're able to do. Anything beyond that, we're not able to do. There just is not the time. You know, and I think you'll see that you're either not working enough or you're working too much. You know, one thing will come, one of those two things will come out of it. Or you're, you know, you're already doing a good job, in which case I'll just shut up. Yeah, well, and it's interesting, too. I think it's funny that we started talking out, started, uh, you know, basically with the premise of we're going to talk about um, finding <laughs> a new job and we've gone totally over into, you know, self-care. To well, <laughs> well, it's it's self-care. It's it's how do you take care of yourself so that you can do the job and how do you set boundaries and things like that. But, you yeah. know, it's it it it's so important. And I think. I think people kind of write this off as soft skills and I don't have to be good at that or I'm not good at that. And I just think long term in order to have the career and the outcomes that you want, I think you have to understand some of these things. Now, again, I mean, if you, you know, if, if it fits into your lifestyle to work crazy hours and and, you know, do a bunch of stuff like that, then, you know, more power to you. 
But, uh, you know, for me, and it sounds like for Dave, you know, that doesn't necessarily always work. And so, yeah, you've got to figure out what, what you can give, what you're willing to give and what the trade-offs are. Cause I mean, I've had my wife come to me a few times and say, basically we, we need you around, <laughs> you know? And yeah. Okay. Well, you know, so I, I cut back on work or cut back on, you know, some of the other extracurricular activities that I've done. In fact, I did that recently where I, you know, I quit a couple of things that I had going on and just, you know, I just looked at people who were counting on me and basically said, look, I've got to give these up so that I can do the other stuff that's more important to me. Yeah. And, you know, I don't have a social life, so it makes me, you know, it makes it really easy to um, do a whole bunch of work or extra extracurricular side projects. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things where it's important to find a job, but it's also important to find a mentor, mm -hmm. you know, whether at the job or somewhere else that, you know, learning is your responsibility. Uh, it's going to benefit you. The company's benefit is going to be a side effect. So it's really important for you to find someone who is better than you that doesn't ridicule doesn't ridicule you, but they really try to help you grow. For example, uh, we have a developer at our company and one of the things that he's really been wanting to learn, that's not really work related, but it's something that he's been really struggling with is the, um, the whole full aspect, the full stack of the development, you know, being able to deploy your applications, being able to set up and maintain servers and being able to, uh, you know, kind of network them all together. So I'm actually having him over my house tomorrow uh, night and we're just going to, you know, hack around at night. Uh, I have a, you know, unfortunately, I have a bunch of computers I'm not using anymore. So I'm just going to install some hypervisors on them and show him like, hey, here's a dummy application that you've built. Here's how we would deploy it with, um, you know, a load balancer, multiple web servers with the database backend, with a caching environment and all of that stuff. So it's something where um, I really like him and I've taken him kind of like under my wing to uh, mentor, mentor him on some things. And it's something where it's not directly work related. It's something that is going to benefit him and it's going to change his way of thinking, approaching things, you know, like not storing um images on the actual computer, but use a external service to where multiple web servers can communicate to, you know, it's mm -hmm. going to change his way of thinking that the company in turn would benefit from because it's going to make him more efficient in what he does because he's starting to think about these kind of things as they uh, uh, come up. But it's something where he wants to learn, he, you know, the company doesn't have the resources. You know, I'm not saying that's about our company, but, you know, let's say your company doesn't have the resources to really um, show you these kind of things. So having a mentor at your company or outside of your company, someone else to really kind of help you through and work through some of these things with you can be very beneficial for your own personal benefit, but also your career. Yeah, I'm just going to pile in on in on that. So, um, you know, I mentioned Mosey and, you know, moving on to my first development job at uh, the consultancy that I worked for. Um, when I got hired, there was another developer there named Nate. And Nate's somebody that I've been trying to get on this show for a while. Um, and uh, anyway, he he was a huge help in that way. You know, it was it, I got mentorship on the job. 
and all of the things that I didn't know about programming, things like design patterns and, you know, testing techniques and things like that were all things that he helped me figure out. And then as I moved on to other places and wasn't working with Nate as closely, um, I wound up meeting David Brady at the users group. And again, you know, he walked me through a ton of stuff, you know, off hours because we didn't work together. And it, it's really critical that you have that. Um, and, and it's one of the things that I tell people to consider when they're looking for that next or first programming job is what kind of people do you want to work with? And are you looking for a mentor and do you want them to be at the job you're working at? And those kinds of things are definitely worth considering when you're trying to figure out uh, where you want to work or, you know, if you're going to stay where you are and you don't have that at work, you know, where do you find it otherwise? And I found that in a lot of cases, talking to people on online forums, if you don't have a local users group also works. So for me, the local users group definitely has paid off in that way. But there are other ways to find mentors if you want. And Brian Hogan, who's another host on this show, he actually has uh, railsmentor.org, and you can go find mentors on there. Do you ever have issues crop up in production that you don't see in development? Do you even know how your app is performing in production? Performance, errors, and analytics to figure out where your app is bogging down are important to keep an eye on. You could try one of those error tracking apps, but why not use a tool that does it all? Try Datadog. Datadog tracks performance, collects data on your errors, and provides you with the information you need to improve your user's experience and fix bugs without having to log into the production server and dig through the logs. What if my app spans across multiple servers and services, you ask? Datadog seamlessly collects metrics from every corner of your application, including services like Amazon AWS and systems like Redis. So whether you want a clear view into your application's performance, need to be notified of new errors, or to keep track of your application across various services you use, use Datadog. If you go to devchat.tv slash Datadog and start a free trial, they'll send you a free Datadog t-shirt. A Ruby mentor. I don't remember. We'll put a link in the show notes. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So it's it's one thing that I've always kind of struggled with because I preach this, but I myself don't have a mentor. Um, you know, everything I do, it's, I know what the issue is, like what task I'm trying to solve. So I will do a lot of research, you know, look online, try to find gems, um, parse through a book. Cause I really don't read books, uh, too much. Um, but you know, I'll do all the research to figure out, you know, is this the right way to do something? So, you know, you can kind of, it's not as efficient, but you can kind of be your own mentor if you have that um, capability of self-teaching. You know, and that's how I learned Ruby. It was, you know, basically all self-taught. Um, you know, they didn't offer it in my college. And, uh, you know, I don't even think it was uh, even a well-known language back then. But, it's definitely more difficult. Yeah, I agree. Um, one other thing that I just point out is that, um, so currently uh, I have a mentor for some of the stuff that I'm doing, but it's all on the podcasting and business end of things. And it's not uncommon for business people to pay for coaching. And again, you know, it, it just comes down to this same principle, right? Where somebody's been there, done that. Somebody has solved the problems that you're trying to solve. And so why not go ahead and find somebody that can walk you through it? And I have picked up a ton from my business coach, Jamie. Um, you can go actually go listen to her podcast if you want. It's eventualmillionaire.com. 
But, uh, you know, it's it's extremely helpful to have somebody just basically say, look, um, here's where you're struggling and here are some of the solutions that you can try. And then you go work them out and then have somebody come back and basically say, all right, well, I've tried these things. Well, you know, do this differently and do this other thing differently. And yeah, you said this thing paid off, but add this to it because it, it adds to that. And just having that experience, and that's really what you're getting from a mentor, is the benefit of their experience. You don't have to spend your spin your wheels a whole bunch to try and figure out the best way to do something. Instead, they can kind of lead you down the path to the, those things and then help you understand how it works without you having to go through the hard way of learning it. Yeah. Absolutely. So you want to shift topics a bit? Um, so, you know... This has been in the uh, in a, a lot of social media lately about how um, developers can't seem to a junior developer can't seem to find a job that everyone only wants senior developers. Can I read you an and, email? What's that? Can I read you an email? Yeah, sure. So this is an email from Leo. Um, I don't know Leo's last name, but he sent me an email because I was uh, sending out some information about getting your first development job. And he basically asked this question. He said, how can there be so much competition in web development? So many things to work on just to sell oneself, plus such a great lack of developers. It just makes no sense to me. If you have the skill sets and there is such a need for developers, why should one need to learn and become a salesman as well? So basically what he's saying is there's all this stuff that you need to learn and then you have to actually go learn how to get a job, but there's this huge demand. So I definitely see the disconnect here. Um, you know, it's, it, yeah, it, it doesn't make sense. It's, there's a huge demand, and yet, yeah, for, for junior people, they have to figure out how to get people to actually hire them. So my advice would be to not even look at the job title. You know, uh, forget about what the company is saying they're looking for, whether it's a junior or senior developer. I would focus on the skill set. You know, um, the skill set that the company is looking for, because, you know, I've seen some job posts out there for a junior developer that goes beyond the stuff that I even know. I mean, it's <laughs> like they're wanting someone with like 40 years of Ruby on Rails experience. It's so true. I'm like, oh, my gosh, are you serious? And you only want to pay like 20000 a year? Are you kidding me? So, you know, don't even go off of the title, you know, because titles are meaningless. They have meaning within the company and there is some carryover to other companies. But, you know, the title junior and senior developer, it's all, you know, relative to what that company believes it mm -hmm. means. Absolutely. So, you know, I think it's silly. Um, I'm really big on, you know, uh, I'm really big on not having titles and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's annoying. But anyways, if if you go to a boot camp and if you go to a university and if you study in if you have reached a certain point of development and now you say, OK, I am now good enough to get a job. If that's where you leave it and if you expect the company to continue your education, you know, on the company's dime on, you know, without any extra effort on yourself, you know, at home, continuing learning, then I think that you are going to constantly have this um, uh, junior mentality where you're never 
really advancing beyond, uh, you know, I call it the professional junior to where you're always that junior. You're never advancing on, you know, development. It's one of those careers that it requires constant education. There's always going to be a new way of doing something, a new language, something new out there. And if you don't want to be that COBOL developer that's, you know, from the 80s and that's still what you're doing today, the same mundane, mundane thing, then, you know, you're going to have to learn. You're going to have to constantly learn. And it's going to be something that you have to do on your own, you know, maybe with some company resources and maybe with a mentor, but it's going to be something that it's up to you. So if you've just graduated a boot camp and if you've been trying to find a job, but you've not done any other programming outside of that boot camp, then it's it's never going to fare well because companies do want someone who can come in and be useful. They want someone, you know, sure, they may not get the most advanced person and they would be willing to, you know, kind of take them on a bit. But at the end of the day, the company wants to hire someone that's going to end up turning a profit for them. Mm -hmm. They're not in the charity case to build you up to make you a better developer so that you can go on to some other company and they benefit from it. They want someone that they can benefit from. And that's the reality of it. You know, the company wants to use you. There are certain things that they have to do to keep you happy, to keep you there. But at the end of the day, it's on you. You know, it's on you to continue your education. You know, um, you can't just, if you become stagnant, then you're no longer useful to your company and you're no longer useful to yourself. For the most part, you know, there's always exceptions to the rules, but for the most part, it's a continual education. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I could say it any better. I mean, ultimately, in my course on how to find a job, um, one of the first modules is essentially what is a job. And it boils down to what you just said, Dave, which is um, they have a problem that they think they can profit by solving and they want you to come in and solve it. And if you can solve it and they can make a profit, then everybody wins and everybody's happy. But um, you have to show them that you're the kind of person that can solve that problem in a way that makes things work for them. And so, you know, think about what they're really looking for. I mean, some of these folks, they go to the HR department, the, the hiring managers, and they're like, we need a developer. And so the HR department tells them that they have to make this list, you know, and it's kind of a wish list of technologies and amount of experience. And so then they go out and they look for people who meet that criteria. I think my favorite anecdote is that uh, Groupon was looking for somebody that had 10 years experience in Rails. Um, and this was a few years ago. Well, there was only one man on the planet that had 10 years experience in Rails, and that was the guy that created it. And they reached out to DHH and they said, hey, it looks like you have 10 years of experience in Rails. Do you want to come work for us? And he came back to him and he basically told him to leave him alone and, you know, embarrassed him publish publicly for it. But, um, you know, because, yeah, it was just kind of funny. Their, their HR people reached out to him not knowing who he was. And, of course, all the developers in the company are like face palming because they all knew who he was. But, you know, it, it just kind of goes to show that a lot of times they put this list together of technical skills and what they're really looking for is the right person who's going to come in and solve the problem. So you do have to have some technical skills, but they're going to come in and solve the problem. They're going to do it quickly and efficiently enough to where the company can turn a profit uh, on them pretty quickly and that aren't going to cause problems. So they don't have some personality issue. They don't come to work 
um, not having showered for a week and kind of drive everyone out of the room. You know, just just basic <laughs> common things that make you a pleasant person to work with. And so, yeah, if, if you can show, and, and this is the thing is, so having having the certificate from the boot camp, it shows that you can make it through three or six months of boot camp, but it doesn't necessarily show them that you're the kind of person they want to hire. And I think that's what comes back to this email that I got from Leo was that, you know, why do I have to work so hard to sell myself? Well, the answer is, is that they want somebody who can come in, solve these problems, make the company a profit and make them happy to have you there as a person. And so if, if you, if you aren't selling them on those things, then they're not going to hire you because even if you're a genius developer, if you're a headache to work with, they don't want you. And they don't put that on the job listing because I don't know if there's really a way to do that. Um, you know, don't, you know, don't be a jerk. <laughs> you just don't see that on, <laughs> on the job listing. But, you know, if you can come in and it's like, look, you know, I can solve these problems for you. Um, and I go out of my way to learn enough so that if you have other problems that aren't on this list or that you don't know that I'm going to have to solve, but eventually I will have to solve, you're confident that I can pick it up, contribute and make a difference there. And then all of the other people that I have to work with are going to be happy to have to interface with me one way or another and, you know, maybe even make some friends at work. And that way, everybody's happy to have you there. And if you, you know, if you can put that across so that, hey, look, I, I, I work well uh, under the circumstances that I'm going to be working under. I'm going to fit well in the company culture. And I'm going to be, like I said, the kind of person that you want to have around. Then, boom, you know, you can get that job. But, it, you know, it, it comes down to being able to explain to people why they want to give you dollars to have you show up. And if they if it doesn't make sense for them to give you dollars to have you show up, then they're not going to hire you. And if uh, unless they're absolutely desperate, they're probably not going to take a chance on somebody unless they have some indicators that tell them that it, you know, they at least have even odds of bringing somebody in that they're going to be happy they hired. Yeah. You know, uh, because I have been at the same company for eight years, when we do hire a new developer for our team, I'm the one in the interview room doing the interviews. Mm -hmm. And I have a list of questions that I ask. And, you know, I tailor and I may not ask certain ones depending on the person's background. Because one thing I do not like about a lot of interviewers is that they try to almost they try to make the candidate feel stupid. And I think that's very counterproductive because if that is someone that you end up liking uh, or they're just the best candidate, then they already have a bad taste in their mouth about the company. And you're going to start off the whole dynamics wrong. Yeah. Um, and then you have other uh, employers who will just want to, uh, you know, like test the crap out of you. Like they'll give you an application. They say, hey spend 40 hours working on this problem and submit it to <laughs> GitHub. And if it doesn't pass all of our tests and the secret tests that we didn't tell you about, then, you know, we're not even going to consider you. Or they bring you in and you show up and they said, okay, here is a problem. Whiteboard it out. Oh. You know, uh, it's like, <laughs> you know, where have we gone from? Like the most of a test that I got when I was younger was like an aptitude test. It's like, you know, one of those little silly, you know, here's a sequence of numbers. What's the next sequence? You know, it's like something like that where it wasn't really um, 
it didn't have anything to do with the job. But what it did do was it let the employer know, how is my thinking? You know, how am I, you know, what level am I at with being able to identify a issue or a sequence and how can I solve it? And this was for the sysadmin job. And it was one of those things where they were able to determine that from my way of thinking that I would be able to solve these kind of problems that was completely unrelated to the test. But it was almost a analogy to what would be happening in the real world. And I think that's so much more important than drilling someone who, you know, maybe doesn't perform well on tests. Yeah. You know, but I think that um, – in my personal opinion, the way to go is a verbal, you know, like a verbal test, uh, uh, just chit-chatting with them. Because you have to be able to determine from conversation, one, what is this person, what is the point that they're getting across? You know, what is it that they are trying to tell me? And another thing is, sorry, I was just getting a phone call, so I got a little bit distracted. Um, but the other thing is, like, how is this person thinking? You know, how based on the question that I asked them, what is their process and coming to an answer? And you can tell a lot about someone's capabilities, not necessarily how much they know right now, but what they are capable of. And at the end, that's that's what it really boils down to. A employer doesn't want to hire someone who knows, you know, they don't want to hire an employee with here's what this employee knows right now, but they will never be able to get beyond that point because then that person's only going to be so useful for a short amount of time and then they're gone. They're either going to get bored because they see that, you know, either uh, the work's too hard or it's just not challenging enough or, you know, the employer is going to lay them off because they're just not able to keep up with the business demand. Yep. You know, and of course, um, <laughs> if, if we want to switch topics a bit, one thing that I hate more than anything about finding a new job is third party recruiters. Uh, <laughs> yes. For any third party recruiters listening out there, I'm talking to you. Uh, no, I mean, seriously, like, I will get several emails a week, uh, sometimes multiple a day, and they're asking like, hey, we have this data entry position that I think you would be a great fit for, or hey, you know, there's this .NET, uh, I have this .NET client that's so in innovative that you're going to be the perfect fit. It's like, did you even bother looking at my LinkedIn profile, at my Twitter page to see that? I have nothing to do with that space at all. Like, why do you think I would be a good fit? I think my favorite one was I got contacted by a recruiter and, you know, they're like, yeah, we found you on LinkedIn and we're recruiting for this, um, this uh, consultancy in Lehigh, Utah, and we think you'd be a terrific fit. And I'm like, okay, you know, and, and I was, I was at the time looking for contracts. And so, I was like, well, are you open to hiring contractors? And they're like, oh, yeah. And so I get on the phone with them and I ask them what the name of the company is. And they tell me. And I, I immediately said, did you, you said you found me on LinkedIn, right? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, did you read my profile? Yeah. 
so you saw where I actually worked for this company in the past. <laughs> and, you know, just dead silence, right? <laughs> but, yeah, it, it, it's funny. And then, and then they always have the gall afterward to ask, well, do you know anyone else who's looking? And it's like, yeah, it's like, yeah I'm going to tell my I'm going to give you my friend's phone number. I don't know anything about you. Give me a break. So the funniest one that I got, uh, I saved the email, but you know, it would take me too long to dig it up, but it was, it was more recent. They emailed me, says, say like, Hey Dave, I found your profile online, but you know what? I was uh, about to contact you to see if you'd be interested in this job. But, you know, I started looking around at some of the different things that you're doing and that you've done. And I've came to a quick realization that there's no way you'd be interested in what I have to offer you. So if you know what anyone else like he just he skipped like the the whining and dining and went straight to like hey you know anyone else <laughs> it's cheaper than buying you lunch right yeah like i thought that was so funny like i, I didn't respond because you know i have a policy not to respond to third-party recruiters like a self-made policy you know um unless if i'm wanting to mess with them you know if i'm in that kind of mood but you know it's like you know this was either a tactic that he was, you know, maybe hoping that I would say, oh, no, 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 I'm interested. Or maybe he really did just read my profile and realize that, you know, I'm not interested in a two month contract with having been with my current employer for eight years. You know, that's funny. like anyone who says that they have a contract position, I'm not going to even give it the time of day because, look, I've been in my current employer for eight years. You know, I'm happy. I'm happy there. Would I be willing to leave if a better opportunity arose? Perhaps, but a two-month contract is not a better opportunity in any way, shape, or form. You know, from a stability standpoint, for one. So it was funny. Um, you know, and uh, another thing I found with third-party recruiters, one, you know, <laughs> it's so horrible. Like one of them says, like, "Hey, you know, I saw your uh, LinkedIn profile." And when you want to get serious with your life, give me a call because I have a great opportunity with, you know, for you. And I'm like, what makes you think I'm not serious with my life? Like they almost go to that <laughs> insulting, uh, right. insult you to get something out of you. So it's amazing, like the different tactics that they'll uh, bring to try to kind of suck you in. But, you know, that's why it's easier to just have the policy that I will not work with third-party recruiters, cyber coders, I'm sorry, quit contacting me, not interested, and, you know, all that stuff. So if uh, cyber coders want your sponsors, Chuck, I'm sorry, you can delete this. But, um, yeah, it's, they're, they're often, they, they don't know the client that they're working for, and they don't know the developer. They're just trying to, you know, quickly make a fit. Yep. So, uh I, I could go on and on about third-party recruiters, <laughs> but I, I think you've covered it. And I think really the most valuable thing that I can say to people who are out there that are trying to find a job is that the thing that has worked for me over and over and over again and is by far the most valuable thing that I can tell you is get to know other people in the field, especially in the area that you live in, because they will know where the jobs are. And if they get to know you and trust you, they will refer you to those jobs. And those warm leads come in before they list the job a lot of times. In other words, then you're just competing with the other folks that know somebody that works for the company. And in a lot of cases, those are the better jobs anyway. And so, I mean, you know, you can go hunt the job boards, but, you know, that, that's just a rung down or two, you know, it, it's second or third choice from actually finding somebody that, 
somebody at the company's already worked with. And so, and I, I go into this in detail in the course and then talk about how you get noticed by the folks, you know, and get to know them that work at the company. Um, I also talk about getting to know about the company and targeting the companies that you want to work for so that you get a job that you'll be happy with. But I mean, by far the best and easiest way to get a job is to get to know somebody who works at a company doing the thing that you want to do. And if you can do that, you kind of get that built-in mentor, which we already talked about. And the other thing is, is that, that that personal level of referral makes you much, much more likely to get that job. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, every job that I got except for one or two and most of the contracts I got were people that either got to know me through the podcasts. And so, you know, I didn't necessarily get to know them, but they got to know me or they came through somebody that I knew in the local community. Yeah, I, I, th- I think you're spot on. Um, you know, because there's also a, a some sense of accountability when someone goes to bat for you. Yep. You know, because, um, I mean, when I go to bat for someone, which I really I don't do often because that reflects on me, you know, eventually, you know, and it's kind of funny how uh, a company, you know, I'm not saying this about my company or any company I know, but companies hold grudges. So if I hire someone, you know, OK, so I'll tell you the story. Uh, I used to be a manager at Pizza Hut, like back in college, way back in the day. And I went to bat for my buddy who I really liked, but I knew he wasn't like the best of employee, that he was kind of lazy. Uh, not, not lazy, but, you know, he just then, you know, we were in college. So, you know, all of that comes with it. And I went to bat for him to get him a job there and he ended up getting fired because he would either uh, be late or just wouldn't show up. You know, he, he did good for some time, but it, it didn't work out. And I'm like, you know, that reflects poorly on me because I went to bat for this guy. And, you know, now I have to deal with uh, the aftermath of it. So when I do go back, go to bat for someone, it's because I truly believe that they are going to be the best person for the job and that I believe that they have the capacity for growth. Yep, absolutely. And I'm in the same boat. In fact, uh, one of my really good friends from high school came to me and asked for a referral. And I had to tell him no because, you know, he, he just, I didn't think he would work out well in that position. And... You know, it sucks sometimes to do that, but I feel like um, by making those kinds of introductions with integrity, you set yourself up to be able to really make a difference for both those people and for the company that you're referring. Yeah. Well, there's a whole lot more here, but we've already been talking for about an hour. Um, Oh, have we? Oh, man. (laughs) You know, but yeah, I mean, we could go into resumes, we could go into salary negotiations, we could go into all kinds of stuff. And, and I go into a lot of this in the course, um, so I'm just going to call that out right now. You can go check it out at getacoderjob.com, and uh, there will be a link there to, uh, to find out more about the course. I'm not going to belabor it much more than that because I think if people are interested, then they will um, go check it out, and if they're not, then they won't. Right. Do you have any parting words of wisdom before we do picks? Um, yeah, and I know this could... Uh, just go so much more, uh, like you said, but on your resume, I mean, 
take the time and do it right because you know there's a Japanese philosophy uh, Ichigo Ichie and the premise of it is this is your once in a lifetime to make an impression it's actually it goes much more deeper than that but as far as a employer's perspective that is the very first thing that they're going to see about you and they are going to form before they even talk to you or meet you, they're going to form their opinion about you. And getting that opinion to change is going to be really difficult. So you want to make sure that your resume does not have um, spelling errors, that it's grammatically correct, that it is relevant and updated. And, you know, because I saw one resume where someone had in the footer, you know, john.doitexample.com. I'm like, this is a joke. So, uh, <laughs> really, yeah. John Dot Doe, huh? Yeah. So you, you have to make sure that it is relevant to, you know, and it's accurate. You know, don't lie on it. Don't oversell yourself. Make sure that you are being honest, but highlighting, you know, your, your best qualities. Yep, absolutely. The only thing I would add is that I recommend to most people who send in a resume that a you have a cover letter that explains uh, who you are and why you want to work for the company that you're applying to. In other words, it should be customized to the company. You should do enough homework to know generally what kind of a person they want to hire and then explain why that makes you excited to go work for them. That way they understand it's not just, a, oh, I'm sending this resume everywhere. It's I really do want to work with you folks. And then the yeah. other thing is personalize the resume. So there are some things that one company is going to care about more than another. And if you have that stuff on your resume and make sure that it's toward the top and easy to find, then they're much more likely. Because most, most uh, employers that I've found, they don't read resumes. They scan them. And so if you make mm -hmm. it easy to see the points that they really care about, then it's much easier for them to decide, you know what? I need to talk to this person. Yeah. And single sheet of paper, front and back, maybe. But if you use more than two sheets of paper, like meaning just two pay, two sides, I'm not going to read it. You know, I don't have time to read all that. I had someone who sent me a seven page resume. I'm like, Holy there cow. is no way I'm going to read this. Like my answer is no, because you cannot convey your worth within two pages. Like there's no way I'm going to do it. Like, I don't care if you have like, you've been to the moon and back, like, and you've done all these accomplishments. It's too much. You can't convey like, here's why I should hire you within two pages. Well, that's what the interview's for anyway. Um, I generally tell people you can go over a page, but everything on there better be relevant. Um, yeah. You know, and then, yeah, I mean, seven pages is excessive. I don't know if I would go beyond two, but, you know, if, if I'm going beyond one page, like I said, it better all be relevant to that job. You know, they don't want to see that you worked at Pizza Hut if, you know, if that's on your, if that's your work experience on the second page. If they, if they see stuff that's relevant to them, and then and they see that, you know, you've only had one job doing it. And then, you know, maybe you put down that you worked at, you know, Pizza Hut and a couple of other things. But then you just put your leadership in there, um, you know, or, you know, contributions that show that, you you know, you have some initiative or something. But, you know, if, if they really have questions about your resume, 
that you know the first job or first couple of jobs listed are going to need to be relevant and then after that it's just a matter of hey you know we only see you know two years worth of experience on your resume and then you can explain well i went through the boot camp and before that i worked for mcdonald's or whatever you know and, th- and they'll understand that so yeah. you know just just keep that in mind if they if they have questions you don't have to answer them all on the resume you can answer those in the interview. Just make sure that the stuff that's really going to hit home for them is easy to find and, and front and center. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Do you hate wasting hours debugging code every week when you should be working on your app? You should check out our new sponsor, Airbrake.io, a full stack error monitoring tool that alerts you to errors in your software, then helps you diagnose and fix them. That means no more wasted time searching log files and more time writing and shipping great code. Airbrake supports .NET and all major programming languages. Get set up at getairbrake.com slash CB for a free 30-day trial and the chance to win a $500 Amazon gift card at the end of the month. It's a completely free trial and you'll be shocked by how much time it saves you. Again, that's airbrake.com slash CB. Again, that's getairbrake.com slash CB. Dave, do you have some picks? Okay, I have one pick. It's not computers. It's not power tools. It's really embarrassing, but I'll tell you. Uh, so my wife was at Hobby Lobby the other day, and you know I have three children under the age of four, so life is hectic whenever you go try to take three kids that young somewhere alone. Well, my son, I can identify. She was. <laughs> Oh dear. Uh, she was at the checkout and my two-year-old son reaches over at the counter because, you know, I swear I, I hate companies for doing this, but they put all the candy and gadgets and gizmos right there at the checkout uh-huh. just to, you know, get those little kids at the last second say, mommy, mommy, daddy, daddy, I want this. Well, so my son grabbed a fidget spinner and he just destroyed the box. And the you know, my wife didn't notice because she was trying to manage the other two and try to check out, make sure everything was ringing up correctly. So she didn't notice, but the cashier guy would just say their mouth dropped. Look at this little kid devour a box. So she ended up having to buy the fidget spinner. So I've been playing with it for the past week and it's actually really cool. There are a lot <laughs> of fun. <laughs> so fidget spinner, that is my pick. Awesome. So uh, a couple things that I'm going to shout out about. First of all, I've started doing a video. It's about a 10-minute video every morning, or at least on weekdays right now. Um, I've, I've been rereading the book The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. And so, yeah, I've been getting up at 5 a.m. and you know going through a morning routine. And part of my routine is recording this 10-minute video on YouTube. So I've got three episodes up. It's called The Daily Lasagna. If you go to... Uh, there's a story behind it. I tell it in the first episode. Um, but anyway, um, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But yeah, we've got um, all kinds of stuff up on the devchat.tv YouTube channel. So if you're interested in that, then uh, definitely check it out. And um, yeah, I'm going to put a link, like I said, to the playlist for the daily lasagna. So if you want to just know what I'm talking about or thinking about, you know, then, then you can definitely check it out. But yeah, I've got three videos up as we record this next, you know, this comes out next week. So there'll probably be closer to, you know, eight or so. But anyway, um, yeah, it's just, you know, some random thoughts. There's usually something that ties it all together, but not always. I make no promises about what I'm going to say or not say, or whether or not you'll like it. But um, you know, it's just kind of an interesting view into things. I've had a few people get back to me and say that they enjoyed it. But uh, anyway, 
So that's one thing that I'm doing. And then the other thing that I'm doing is I've gone back on the ketogenic diet. Um, and if you're not familiar with that, it's ultra low carb, high fat, uh, moderate protein. And uh, there are some terrific resources out there. So if you're interested in um, improving your health, and this sounds like something you're interested in, I'm diabetic. So, you know, carbs just are a problem for me anyway. So doing ultra low, low carb makes a lot of sense, at least to me, for me. And uh, so I'm going to pick a couple of resources there. One is the podcast Two Keto Dudes. Um, if you are familiar with .NET Rocks, um, the hosts are Carl Franklin. And it's not Richard Campbell. It's another Richard. I think his name is Richard Morris. And um, he's from Canberra, Australia. And uh, they are fun to listen to. But they they go and they do research and they actually talk about the science as well as their own experience. And it, I find that it's a good mix of those two things. And so I've really been enjoying that. Um, and Carl's a friend of mine. Um, we've gotten to know each other over the last few years um, since I kind of met them and wound up on .NET Rocks a few years ago. So um, anyway, I, I've been really enjoying that. And then there's another website called ruled.me. And I don't know why that domain in particular but they have a whole bunch of keto recipes. And so uh, I, like this afternoon, as soon as we're done recording here, I'm going to go downstairs and make myself some keto pad thai because um, I love thai. Uh, anyway, great stuff. There, there's a whole bunch of other stuff out there for keto. It's kind of growing. There are more books. Um, there's also another podcast called The Live in La Vida Low Carb Show by Jimmy Moore. And it's pretty good, but it's a little bit deeper on the science. Um, he mostly interviews people and talks a lot about that. But he's also got a bunch of books like Keto Clarity and Cholesterol Clarity and some of these other books. So um, if you're trying to get into ketogenic diet or you want to check it out, uh, Keto Clarity was a great book that he wrote. And uh, it's a good way to kind of get introduced to the, the idea. And there are keto cookbooks and stuff on Amazon. But those are the resources that I've been using lately to, to lose weight. I did this back in June. And I lost 12 pounds. Um, all of my diabetes markers kind of came in line. And then, you know, for some reasons I'm not going to go into on this show, um, I wound up going off of keto for about a month. And now I'm back on it. So um, anyway enough rambling about my diet um, but that's kind of what I'm doing these days cool. and I guess we'll go ahead and wrap that up thanks All right, for coming man. yeah thank you bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly the world's fastest CDN deliver your content fast with Cashfly visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more <laughs>